on my podcast. I love interviewing interesting people. That's why it works. And I love different genres in life. I have a young man and we're going into the world of dance, but not just dance. This is something revolutionary. This young man is incredibly attractive, uh, incredibly talented, has done a lot for the uh, gay community and gave us the House of Suarez. Now, hopefully that will tease you to listen to this amazing interview I'm going to do with Darren Suarez. Hello. Hi, how are you? Nice intro. Yeah, that was brilliant, thank you. I thought that was quite good. Didn't even write it. <laughs> Darren, we've known each other for a long, long time, but never been close friends, just mates and we see each other. But it's that show business sort of friendship where you just pick up. Yeah, that's right, actually. Um, and it's been quite nice because we randomly bump into each other and we'll stop and have a coffee or we've had lunch a couple of times and it's been really nice. Plus you've been involved with some stuff that we've been doing as well. Have indeed, which we will talk about. First of all, the big question, who is Darren Suarez? So I uh, was born in London, then I moved to Liverpool when I was six. Uh, my dad was Spanish, he still is. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my mum was born in Liverpool, but they both met in London where they had me. And back in the 70s, it wasn't part of the EU, so my dad was deported to source out his papers and my mum couldn't, unfortunately, live survive in London, so she came back to Liverpool to the family, where I was raised in Norris Green. And then I grew up to sort of get into martial arts and I used to love my art. And then when I came out on the gay scene at the age of, should I dare say it, 15, 16, um, it sort of changed my life, and for the better as well. Um, I was exposed to a culture that blew my mind, and also I found it very accepting of who I was as a person. Right, let's go back. So there's a potted history. Start with the deportation. That must have been very, very traumatic. For my mum, yeah. I was a, still a baby, so I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, How long did it last? It was about a year. Oh, yeah. so he didn't get, just get back in? No, no, no. We had to go back, and then he had stuff to sort out over in Spain. Then he was back and forth. But it wasn't until, I think it was 1979, where everything was completely sorted. Um, and then he then moved to the UK properly, started working straight away, and... The rest is history from there, yeah. So, the martial arts, let's go on to that, because was it because of martial arts you went into dance? Actually, no. I did it because um, I loved the form of it, and also my father was really close friends of the Red Triangle, Frank Brennan and Andy Sherry. Which I know very well, Frank yeah. and Andy. Yeah, and I'm really, great, I'm really good friends with them now. Um, and they spoke, they spoke to my father and was like, yeah, just send them down, see if he, gets, if he takes to it. And it was a really nice community of people and, and young people getting to learn a new skill and it was also very um, disciplining which I thought was really good for an outlook of life. I think Frank Brennan was the, the person I was second most, fe I feared most after, after my dad. I gave him a father figure kind of thing because he demanded and commanded the space. Um, so I learnt, I learnt a lot of self-discipline, I learnt a lot of um, how to move my body, I found, about how to ground myself. It gave me a really nice outlook of respect for others. Um, and I do think, even though it didn't influence me being a dancer, because later on down the line I became a contemporary, classical contemporary dancer, the groundedness from my martial arts and sort of really supported all my dance work that I did. So, yeah, you take those skills through life, I think. 
Interesting you mentioned about Frank Brennan, who is world famous mm-hmm. within that world of martial arts. Can you explain? Because it, it's difficult. I know Frank, and I laugh and joke with him. And people go, I can't believe you get away with that. Can you bl- explain the, um, uh, the respect and discipline within the martial art world? Well, there's already... At um, a hierarchy which are called senseis. Um, they go then from black belt to dan belts. They show the command of respect within the room and they show the discipline and also the skill that they've got. And it takes years to get to that point. So if you're committing to such an art form, because I still class martial arts as an art form as well as a, a battle form, a combat form, um, you do start to respect the idea of someone who's conformed and actually you respect what they've achieved, you respect their skill, you respect how they teach you. And then like any mentor, when you're learning of someone, you're like a sponge. They, they unofficially command respect back. And I feel that that skill and that, um, that life lesson is really key and important. Darren, you mentioned that you came out at 15 onto the gay scene. Explain your life before then. Did you have a battle with homosexuality actually within yourself no oh within myself yeah not with my school or outlook i was never actually got called other names because i was hot because i was spanish i'd get the racism card like people would get race racist with it but with myself sexuality obviously it when i those thoughts that were going on it was so underground it was so taboo that I did feel alone. I felt isolated in my own head or if I'd look at someone too long, I thought I was going to get, like, my head kicked in. Um, so it was very... It was a very scary playground when it come down to exploring sexuality. Did you want to be straight? Whatever the word straight means. Um, back then, it, it seemed like an easy life. You know what I mean? It felt like that it, people would... If you want to conform and you want to get on in life, then you have to conform into the sheep, the sheep family which means that you get a job, you get a wife, you have kids. And by and looking at that, it was like, oh, so that's what I need to do. And sort of at some points, even when I was coming out in the gay scene, I still held on to that. If something would go wrong with my my mind on the, on the gay community, I'd go like, do you know what? Maybe this is not for me. And I'd have a battle with myself, only down to what society was feeding us. Um, I do feel that... the the straight community will always have something to say about the gay community because we're survivors. And I think feeling that part, when I'm going into a community, I found it so tiny that when I went in, it was like going into a, literally Narnia. So you'd go into a world where you'd be able to express yourself and everything else. When I left that and hit, like going into sixth form or doing my A-levels and stuff like that, being part of the gay community, I felt like I had to be this fake. So I was living. Because the more I became myself as a gay person, the more I realised I was fake in many different ways. And I think that transition I battled with for a couple of years, actually. So alongside fighting your sexuality, because the norm was, as you just said, to be that, you also experienced racism. Now, you see, people in this day and age would not think of racism at all with Spanish people. Spanish people are Spanish people. But you just opened a wound. Yeah, um... And it wasn't anything to do with me being Spanish, but in because I've got olive skin, if I, in the summer I'd go really dark, they'd come out with slant like nigger and packy. Oh, really? Yeah. So, and that was, to me, obviously, 
I didn't really compute, even though I was like, well, okay, I get who the, that what the, those races are, but that doesn't really associate to me. Um, and it was just literally because I lived in a white community. And when you look at it, looking back, there was probably one mixed race guy and probably me who goes darker in the summer. So they wouldn't think of it being Spanish? No, they it didn't. Just, they, had, they just co- correlated to those words? They, do, they were just ignorant yeah. enough just to do anything. Anyone who's darker skinned than them is either those two races. That was literally it. Did you struggle at school over your sexuality with mates without mentioning names? Were you in love with somebody? Did you fumble and mess about or did you keep yourself to yourself? Um, I was quite a loner, to be fair, due to, to like my, a situation, my situation at home. So I kept myself to myself. Um, socially, I was, I was still very friendly and everything else, but I wasn't outgoing. Um, but... When I came down, I, used to, I did have a crush on one guy and we used to work for Critchley's ice cream van and um, something did happen, which was really, which was, it just confirmed, wow, okay, this is who I am and this is what I feel I want to do. Um, and what broke my heart was, because I wasn't really, I didn't know how to explain what sexuality was because I was still young. When it came down to doing that transition from the straight community into the gay community, I, I confided in a best friend and he turned his back on me, which broke my heart because I thought, because we were so close throughout, I felt that he would understand and we have still have never spoken since. That's sad that because I come from a different generation to you, but I understand that completely. I also lost a friend and I lost a friend and I did speak eventually. And the problem was he didn't want to be branded. That was the fear because in my day it was illegal. I mean, it's still a big step. I remember a young man on my radio show. I begged him not to come out. I I knew because I was an older man. He used to come on my show and talk to me and I begged him not to come out and he went and came out. His mother threw him out the house. His father knocked him out, threw the clothes. He became a rent boy and eventually, sadly, committed suicide. But I begged him not to. Mm. Nobody understands. It's a hell of a step, isn't it? I think what happened was, the next step was, I got to a point where I felt alien like an alien in the straight world and what I did was I actually run away from home for six months um my dad went on some kind of look for me went everywhere and stuff but I was a bit too I was just petrified to come out and tell them I was gay because not just because of my own protection but I went on the gay community I was speaking to guys who were a little bit older than me whose family just disowned them completely and you'd see them broken and I didn't want to um, take that risk do you know what I mean I really didn't want to take that risk so anyway it goes around I was couch surfing I was partying I was young I was living living a life and then I, it got wind it got back to me that my dad had been punched remember in the coconut grove yeah because he went in the coconut grove thinking he was looking for me got the police in there because they had torches then he got punched and then all of a sudden it got back to me and he just said he just said go and see your dad so he picked me up in his capri outside Churchill's and um, he ju- I, ju- I just sat there and he was like I know you're a puff and he said but I love you he says and I want you to look after your health and I want you to not throw it in my face but I do I do respect that that's what you are mm-hmm. um, 
And I just shut up. I was just like sitting there like really quiet. Didn't really feel like he was accepting it. I just felt like he was making a statement. And then because my mum had, had dementia, so he said, don't tell your mum because I don't really want it to trigger anything. So I didn't. And then as the years went on, each Christmas, me and my dad would have a drink and he'd go, you know, it's only a phase. Or because my cousin, my dad was a priest as well. My dad was a, a novice priest for 10 years in Spain. Um, so he left the church. It wasn't for him, but he also understood what the Bible stood for for him. And he had that sort of torn idea of what he should be telling me and what he feels. So anyway, years later, I'm in the village in Manchester, outside the New York, New York, and my mum calls me on my mobile. Now, you know, our parents with technology are like, oh, why are they calling me? Because they probably took them three days to work out what the phone is to switch it on. So I ran out panicking, and I rang my, uh, my mum, uh, my mom, I answered to my mum, and she said, oh, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm in Manchester. And she went, I'm in the village. And she was like, oh, I think I've seen that on Granada Reports. They have a Mardi Gras. <laughs> and I, I literally shit myself. And she, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I'm with some friends. And then she went, oh, it looks really, really good there. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I went, you do know it's, it's, it's a gay village. And she was like, yeah. And then I just bit the bullet and I said, you know, I'm gay. And she went, yeah, she went, but I've always loved you and I will always accept you for that. Um, and then... I just started crying, slid down the wall. And it was just, for that, that moment, it was like, my parents know now, and they accept me, so, can I swear? Yeah. <laughs> the world can get to fuck. So, and that was a real um, boost of who I was as a person. Because I think the, everyone wants acceptance, and everyone wants their parents to be proud of them. And it was just that, that bridge that I crossed that day, my outlook to how I stood and how I held myself and my poise with people and how I actually walked into a room was completely changed. And it sort of enforced and sort of gave me the confidence to pursue what I'd do for a career even more because they were completely behind, behind my back. I'm talking to Darren Suarez. I'm not going to stay too long with this subject, but I, I, there's a couple of more questions before we go into the world of dance and the house of Suarez. But I've got to ask you, how did you cope with and the community you were in with AIDS? Because um, it was, to me, one of the scariest times, not helped in any shape or form by the ridiculously bad, vile publicity that we were castigated. I have to be completely honest it has affected how my i live my sexual life now and it always will that tombstone falling with thatcherism and that whole this is the death sentence it's the gay plague and not just that it was the the society behind it and how they the first thing that would come out if you were gay you've got AIDS or die die of AIDS or whatever it was so horrible and one thing really stood out to me and i mean obviously the sad story behind any gay community back then was you'd have a community and you'd be chatting to one person and all of a sudden they wouldn't be out the following week and you'd be told weeks later that they passed away with AIDS. And it was, it was just like you could, you'd just seen people vanish in this community that you'd go to. And one thing that really resonates was he was a beautiful guy called Pedro, really short guy, Spanish guy. And I, I, I was such a big crush, but he wouldn't give me the time of day. And we were in a party one night and I was waiting to use the toilet and he was coming out and I, I, I was drunk and I was like, oh, you? It's like, what's right? I, I, 
why, why can't we go out for a date or something like that? Anyway, he pulls me into the cubicle and he goes, the reason I'm not, ta- uh, the reason I've not uh, talked to you, Darren, is because I have AIDS. And he says, I didn't want to tell you. He says, but I've literally got seven weeks left. And he, or, and he, it was, that to me was, oh my God, that was such an eye-opener for me. That changed everything I knew about that whole AIDS era. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and obviously we've lost probably mutual friends back in the day to it. And I don't think it was, I don't think people will ever, ever understand what it is to lose someone. Especially when you're a kid and you're like, what happened? Oh, they've got AIDS. And then what you do is there was no internet. There was no information. There wasn't organizations that were giving you the support or actually you catch it like this and you, 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 don't, you can't catch it like this. There was none of that. So literally I was, at one point, I was petrified to kiss someone because the way the... Well, press, we were told. Yeah. If you kiss somebody, you could get it. Yeah. There was all Off the toilet seats and everything. Everything. Ridiculous time. It was a terrible, terrible time. One more question before we leave that and go on to the world of dance. Mm-hmm. What advice... Well, for two questions. One, do you think that homophobia is alive and well still? And also, what advice would you give to anyone listening now who's maybe a mum or dad or a child fighting with their sexuality and worried about their kids? Yeah, of course I do. I think, and not just that, because now we're living in a new decade of people identifying and having different pronouns, it's opened up also an inner circle of prejudice as well. <laughs> so it's created an inner fight and inner argument within our community and inner sanctum, as well as the outside. Um, and I think there is a massive... The divide's even bigger now because now people have got access to be cruel online. And social media is a blessing in one way, but it can also destroy someone who is not prepared or has got the resilience. And I've seen that for myself. I, one of the jobs I do is I'm a lecturer at Lipper. And because of House of Suarez and because of what we provide as a safe space, a lot of the students confide in me and I'm recently talking with an ex-student now, and she, or they now, as, they've, as they identify, is, and she, they are Greek, and their parents have disowned them. And I've been there just given s- slow counsel, some information, and saying, I'm always here if you need to speak or if you've got any questions. And they are, I de- they're pursuing their sexuality and who they are and how they want to look and how they want to portray but they still feel quite lost that they've not got the acceptance of their parents. And I give them the reassurance that I went through the same until I started then understanding how to speak to my parents and then giving them options. So, so it, it, yes, I would say find people you can confide in, speak to people, look at organisations that are there to support you, look at the community and see who it is that you feel that you connect with. Have a drink of tea. He's drinking green tea. We're here in the Hilton. Uh, I love this little booth I always do my um, interviews in. So, Darren Suarez has now given us an insight into who he is. Spanish, half Spanish, half Liverpool. Uh, uh, Martial arts, uh, the passion over being gay, going through all that, running away, all that pain and all that life experience will then manifest into who he is as a dancer because I've seen him dance and I've seen the command on that stage. So let's talk about how did you discover dance and how did it come about? 
Oh God, okay. So we will go right back to again being 15 years of age. Um, I came out into, into the Curzon, petrified but also very excited. Curzon is a gay bar. Gay bar in Liverpool, which is now closed down, unfortunately. But see, it used to be a tiny little pub and it had the, the posted size of a dance floor. It had a little bricked up DJ box. And I went in one afternoon around about, I think, it, well, if I can remember rightly, it was around about tea time. And I stuck around having a couple of beers. And then the evening, the DJ took over. And all of a sudden, I seen these two or three people in the corner throwing them, throwing these shapes of arms and um, confidence. They were like the club, they were like the flamingos of the club or the peacocks really showing off. And to me, that, they looked really confident. They looked... They looked really confident. They looked um, so involved with themselves and they seemed connected in, in the way they moved. Never seen nothing like it before. And it was called Vogan. So people will be able to associate Vogan with Madonna or Malcolm McLaren, or it's very popular again. It's, it's swung in roundabouts, show my age. Um, then what happened was I quickly got involved with this group of people and started learning this new skill and this new dance form. From that, I then started voguing in the clubs. It gave me so much more confidence. It gave me a boost of what it was to connect into a gay community and also something that was, that was built from a, a gay community. And in 1990, I watched a documentary called Paris is Burning, which tells a story of, it tells the really sad story of people's lives over in New York and it was the black and Latino um, gay community who were living their life through Vogue Balls and Vogan, um, but in a life where they were banished from their parents, banished from society. They had no one. They turned to the gay community and became part of a, a celebration of what it was like to be something they couldn't be. For example, one of the categories is realness. So if you think of something that's real, it's something that's tangible, it's something that you know it to be true. And realness, the category was these people had nothing, so their realness was their alter ego. So if they wanted to be, for a minute and a half, a doctor, they would walk that runway and they would be that doctor and they would be judged on how real they were convincing. Or if you were a femme, femme boy, and you wanted to be real in the straight community, it would be how masculine or how butch you could be. So there was always something that pushed people to be and escape their life. So let me stop you there. So is Vogue an escape? Yes. Right. So let's leave Vogue for a minute. You just had a ball that was once again a sellout, sensational. I was at the first one. We'll talk about that again in a second. But how did you become a dancer? Because you went and trained as a dancer. You now lecture. You now teach. Yeah. So briefly, how did you... Okay. Was it, was it nor, the North... Northern, Northern Contemporary. Northern Contemporary. So what happened was, after Vogue went back underground, probably about 1991, I then quickly got the confidence to start learning hip-hop and commercial dance. Then I was started doing quite a lot of television work. I was doing adverts. I was doing um, back and dancing on top of the pop, CD UK. And then in, when I reached 27, I literally thought, I want to be a dancer all my life. 
then I decided the only way to be that would be to have, make sure I knew that all styles and classical dance was always something that I felt that I was never being able to touch because of, I'm working class and you'd always put ballet as a first class, upper class kind of genre. So I went to Northern School of Contemporary Dance, um, fell in love with it, realised that I was crap and then literally I got stripped down and rebuilt into a machine which then had to then relearn how to perform. Let me stop you there, because that's fascinating when you said you were stripped down and rebuilt. So in other words, because there's so many, I want to be a comic and listen to me, but you've got to be restructured. Actors, because you think, in other words, you thought you knew everything, because, and you are a sensational dancer, but it had to be totally structured. Yeah, so you get told to leave everything in a box when you walk in, and if you are institutionalised. And my journey being older and learning classical ballet and learning con- all the contemporary genres from like Martha Graham to Cunningham to Horton, I was like, oh my God, what's this body? What's this body doing? And you do sort of lose connection of who your personality is because you're actually being stripped right down and rebuilt, whether it's mentally as well as physically. And How I'm, long did that take? The training was three years but I'm still learning now, still working with my body as I get older. But I did find that after two years of graduating, I started to then really understand, ah, I can bring this box back on, layer it through, and actually become an artist. So you don't, no one should leave and go to university thinking they're going to become an artist. What you do is you go, you go there, you, be, you learn your skill, you learn all the information that these teachers are giving you, you take it on board, and then you add it back again and you... Go what I love about what you said there, and I've got a stupid grin on my face. So there you've now been stripped down, taken apart, put back together correctly. But now you can go into the box and say, oh, I can take that and I can take that, yeah. which can add. But you then know how to structure that bit. That's amazing. So now uh, you teach a Lipper so you can bring some of your skills back to other people, which is great. How did the House of Suarez start? And are you thrilled the way it's been now accepted around the world? So, House of... Okay, so if we talk about that box. So after two years after I graduated in 2004, I I was working with some brilliant companies. I was choreographer for the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra for years, and it was great. There was lots of opportunities, but because I was 30... I, and then it was 32 then, I decided that I wanted to do something for me. So with all that skill I'd learned, I went back into my box and Vogue was there. From all those years Yeah, and what I realised was I've got got that vocabulary from years ago, but I've also got all this wisdom and all this knowledge. And I wanted to explore who I was as an artist, exploring a queer dance form, but also a queer dance form as a professional dancer and also being the non... I'm not really... I'm not a feminine guy. I'm, I'm Vogue and it's pretty femme in a lot of ways. So I explored... Setting up House of Suarez to explore my orientation on how I would perform Vogue in with this ballet and contemporary and everything else. And then I, in 2006, I was walking down Bowl Street. I bumped into Homotopia and I just turned around and said, I would like a little pot of money to create an idea. They gave me £1,200. I brought three dancers on 
I paid them £300 each. I got some free rehearsal space and we got together for a week and we came up with three minutes material because I was exploring my mind and exploring material. But then what we did was uh, we, I pulled favours in from the gay community. I performed quite a lot in it. And then we put on a piece in the Unity Theatre in 2006. And I wasn't going to call it the House of Suarez. I was going to call it the House of Banjo Realness or, a, or a, a makeshift name. And my dancers turned around and said, you're the mother or the father of the house you need. It should be House of Suarez. Which is a lot about Vogue. Yeah. When you look at some of the films and the series on Vogue, it's about a house. Yeah. So that's where they put you in your place and said, yes, it's got to be the House of Suarez. Yeah, they were like, it's your house, so you, it takes your name. Like my dancers would take my name if they were actually battling. It'll be like we've got a dancer called Luke Bromelo, but it'd be Luke Suarez if he was battling. But anyway, so we did, we did um, a little sharing in the Unity. It's a hundred seater. We expected about thirty people to turn up. We had hundred and eighty people turn up because I think people were really keen to see what I was doing with this formula. Because I've got to stop you there. When you think of Vogue, people who are listening now will think of Madonna. Yeah. The world thinks of Madonna because she, love or hate it, whatever, she brought the word into the world. She did. Um, I love that idea that she did because back in the day, there was no internet, there was no access to Vogue. We waited till 3pm in the Curzon for MTV to come on so we could see Vogue because of the time difference. And when it was released over there, it was released here and we were mind blown. We were, we were seeing people do more style, more shapes with Vogan, and we were just buying it all and bringing it to the clubs. And for me, it was life-changing. And I know people say she exposed it. I don't personally think she did. She made an announcement. She was celebrating it. She didn't say she created it. She literally said, this is a track called Vogue. And she smashed it, do you know what I mean? And that touched the planet with no internet. So hats off to her, do you know what I mean? I, I completely... For those people that have no idea, first of all, check it out on the internet because it is worth seeing. But I cannot explain how incredibly powerful the night and the magic. I went to the first Vogue Ball. I was one of the judges. I was exhausted for four days <laughs> and I was only watching. I did nothing. I was watching. There's no way I have ever, and I've been in show business for 50 years, I have never seen an energy like I've seen in your Vogue balls. Yeah, um, I have to admit that, yeah. I mean, it's mutated now, and we'll come to that in a bit, but the energy is what, the, is what those artists bring because they feel that they can be whatever they want. And going back to when we first started, it was only small, it was an audience of 200 yeah. people. But In the Baltic Triangle, that way. Wasn't it? Um, one the, of the rooms? The first one was in the Adelphi in 2008. You did the Cream in 2010. Cream, that's the one I was yep. thinking of. Before it was knocked down, obviously. Yeah. And what we found, the, we did a Vogue Ball in collaboration with Ducky in London, who is a queer cabaret in Vauxhall. And we did it with Homotopia. What we produced wasn't really a Vogue Ball for me. It was more of a drag ball. And I, let, I came away from that going, oh, I need to inject this and inject this. And then you came to see what I did by myself. Right. So that was the first real that was Yeah, that was where I took the biggest risk yeah. and took, stepped out myself, stepped out my comfort zone. And I've got to stop you there because I've got to also say, ladies and gentlemen, at the very end, 
everyone, I'm getting upset because it was so fantastic. Everyone was screaming your name. They wanted you on that stage. You'd, you'd made an appearance, but they wanted you to Vogue. And you were at the end of the runway going, no, no. And you did. And you blew the place apart. <laughs> it was unreal. Oh, I was watching. Thank you. And I was so proud that I knew you. And now it's developed ridiculously. You've just had one that's been sold out. Where's it going? Where is the House of Suarez going? So I decided to stop performing at the age of 40 um, just because it was out of my system. I don't believe in doing something if it's already out of your system and you don't get nothing from it. But then I moved on to seeing what the ball is. And the ball has now mutated into its own event, which is a, clearly what they say now a safe space. Um, we're not ballroom which is the community that is very, is very strict and very um, disciplined with what the Vogue scene is. We're a celebration of its culture. So I allow the doors to open for everyone. Every walk of life, um, our straight allies, everyone, disabled artists, if they want to get up and they want to do lip sync or they want to wear a costume, so be it. And by doing that, it's actually, it's changed people's lives. It actually has, I mean, some of the stuff that people send me after the ball and messages and stuff like that. It's life-changing for them. And we have the perfect host. We have Rika Beadle Blair, who will literally shower you in love and make, and make you realise what it is to love yourself. And what you, when you love yourself, you, you, it, it allows you to love others way more and way bigger. And the artists that get involved in the ball, as you've just said then, even from back then, the audience are so given with their energy and so gagging for more that when those artists come out, they feel the energy and they live on that and it, they thrive in it. So everyone's like a superstar for one night. And what I've seen is it influence and change people's lives around the region. I mean, we've got people in Manchester doing their own Vogue houses, doing their own balls. We've got houses in Liverpool that are doing their own thing. We've got people that, those, those Vogues have gone to London, Birmingham, I've had, it's not, I'm not doing it as a, a as a being bullshit or not like that, but I I feel that I've been the seed. No, you were. There's oh. no there's no argument. You created the House of Suarez and gave us Vogue in England. So no, it was yours, and everyone it splintered everywhere, which is fantastic. But no, it is yours. Mm. I will say that publicly. It is yours, and you were influenced by America. Yeah. And you learned all about, but you brought it out like Madonna, lover hater. She gave us Vogue and made it a world name. So I think it's amazing. Where's it going? I mean, and where can people see it? Can they see it online? Is a, a, a special site or, or the clips or? Yeah. So <clears throat> where's it going? Um, we've got well, we have one in Liverpool and we have one in Le uh, Manchester and we've had it in Leeds. I want to keep it within the region because we we've had the opportunities to spread out and branch out. But unfortunately now, we, don't, we, long, we no longer get funding. So that aspect of it really does play a massive um, influence on how, what, how what we can make and what we do. With Liverpool, it's important for Liverpool to have the ball every year because the message of homophobia needs to be stamped out. I feel that we don't have those opportunities or those organisations that actually are consistent enough you know, I, don't, I feel Liverpool is so backward when it comes down to sometimes its outlook and its multicultural sides and elements of diversity. 
that the ball is only one little pebble in what Liverpool should be doing with more. Then it goes to Manchester, and queer theatre there is so accepted. So the audience that we have... Say that again. Queer... Queer theatre is so accepted. queer theatre. Yeah. It's so accepted that when people come to the ball, they just get heavily involved in it. They love it, they appreciate it, and everything else. But in Liverpool, it's an education. So people come to the ball and they're like, I've never seen this before. But you know what? I'm a lot older than you, Darren. It was like that anyway in the gay scene. You went to Manchester. Sadly, Manchester has always beaten Liverpool in things like that, in acceptance. We haven't got much time left. I've got to ask you, the world of dance now, you're... You're teaching at Lipper. The world of dance, it's, it's not a great way to make a living. It is a passion. Um, there's no work or appears to be no work in England. Everybody, all the dancers I know are on the ships, the cruise ships, which is huge business. What can a dancer expect when he leaves training and gets or she or them or they, whatever they want to call themselves? What can they expect oh, to make a living? It's an uphill struggle, but... My advice after what I've seen is learn as much as you can. Become indisposable. Learn as many skills as possible. Don't conform to your institute if they're just saying, no, you're here to do ballet or you're here to do jazz or you're here to do commercial. Learn it all. Get all your fundamentals behind you. Make sure that you are being polite. Make sure you are being nice. When you get a job, respect those people that you're working for because you will meet them again and you will come across them again. And if if you've messed up or fucked up in some way, those, they will come back, those tales come back and we live in such a small community. The dance community in the world is still tiny. If you want to work with the big Beyonce gigs or you want to work in theatre, get into them, make, themselves, get, make yourself known, put yourselves in group chats, follow people, go to masterclasses, be seen, create a new look for yourself if you feel that you're blending too much and just be nice, just be nice to people. Niceness Half my work I always get called back from is because I shut up, I deliver a high level, a high standard, I walk away and I'm nice. Everything you've just said then, I have been saying exactly as you said. I have been in the business 50 years. I know how much talent I've got. That's why I have to work very hard and diversify all the time and reinvent myself. Every word you said, I could not top anything. And being nice... In, in radio, some of my bosses were 23 years old, you know, so you've got to be nice to everyone because you don't know where they're going to go. I think you're a fascinating man. How can people find out more about you and the House of Suarez? So we've got a website, houseofsuarez.co.uk, um, and also our Insta, which has got daily updates and all the information of things that are coming up, and that's House of Suarez, all one word. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.